Dr. John, right place at the wrong time, right here on First Degree Liberty. Welcome to another great episode. I'm Mike, and on today's show, Chase and I sit down with Stefan Kinsella, one of the greatest thinkers of our time, to talk a little bit about ethics and understanding where the non-aggression principle comes from. This is going to be a really important show because it's going back to the very fundamentals of what it means to be a libertarian. So check it out. It's going to be a great show, but it's also going to be a very deep show. So you may want to put your thinking caps on here, and, and I wouldn't operate any heavy machines if I were you. So keep it locked in right here. Don't forget to share the show with your family and friends. And if you have any comments, email us at firstdegreeliberty at gmail.com. And now, put your thinking caps on and prepare yourself for episode 18 of First Degree Liberty. Special guest, Stefan Kinsella. Broadcasting from New York City and Asheville, North Carolina, it's First Degree Liberty with Chase Rachels and Mike Martelli. Hey, welcome back to another episode of First Degree Liberty with me, uh, Chase Rachels, and Mike Martelli. Now, today we have the great pleasure of welcoming Stefan Kinsell on the show. How are you doing, Steph? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? Wonderful. Awesome. Now, um, Stefan Kinsella is the author of Against Intellectual Property. He's also an adjunct scholar with the Mises Institute and has been the editor of the Property, Freedom, and Society book, Essays in Honor of Hans Hermann Hoppe. So, Stefan, uh, today I kind of wanted to talk about proving and justifying the core libertarian principles of uh, non-aggression and self-ownership, or more accurately, uh, body ownership. So, I think before we do that, though, we should cover the concept of uh, what does a priori mean? So, can you explain for the audience uh, the concept of a priori? Yeah, a priori is a uh, kind of a Kantian term, which has to do with the way you establish a truth, um, as opposed to a posteriori, which means after the fact, or which usually means uh, empirical. So, um, uh, so the scientific method of the natural sciences would be an a posteriori science. Like we don't really know what uh, uh, we don't know what. Uh, the causal laws are in the world, and you can't really deduce them. They could be something different than what we might guess they would be. Um, and same thing with historical facts. I mean, these are contingent things that could be, could have been different than they were. Um, but a priori gets at things that you don't have to test to prove that they're correct. Um, in fact, the idea of testing them makes no sense because they basically because you can you can demonstrate that a given proposition is true by pointing out that to deny it would be self-contradictory mm-hmm. um, or that it's inherently presupposed somehow in the inquiring process itself it's sort of an operative presupposition and an unavoidable presupposition of the of the attempt to disprove it or of the nature of inquiry itself something like that um, so that seems and, pretty similar to me to the the um, the content of what an axiom is Correct. I think it is very similar, at least the way Ayn Rand used it. Um, in mathematics and regular philosophy, axiom just means a, a like an assumption or an assumed an assumed uh, fact. Uh, Where Rand uses it to to refer to these basic ideas that are so basic you couldn't even challenge their validity, like the law of, the law of identity or the law of non contradiction, mm-hmm. for example. Um, so I think actually yes, I think it is similar to that. Although Rand would have 
probably pitched a fit to be compared to Kantian type reasoning. But I think there's a, a strong uh, similarity between Rand's method of justifying some of her basic concepts, like even free will. She would argue that, and I don't know if I agree with this proof, but the idea that um, uh, you could never deny free will because if you're inquiring into whether free will is true or not, you're assuming that we can consider the evidence and decide to accept it or not. So the idea of deciding or choice is sort of built into the inquiry um, right. itself. So that's another type of – and I think like Stephen Molyneux calls something like self-detonating arguments, something like that. Right, right. Um, self-detonating ar arguments or, or performative contradictions toward the action of arguing actually conflicts with the, the content of the argument itself. Yes. That, that makes a lot of sense. And um, I think a good example of uh, – what an a priori truth would be was that there there are no square circles, right? If they, if they were square, yeah. they wouldn't be circles. Yeah, you don't have to. And then in <laughs> economics, I mean, Mises was a sort of neo-Kantian. He uses a lot of a priori reasoning uh, himself in his uh, in his economics. So basically, he talks about um, uh, the action axiom or the action um, uh, the law of action. You know, human human action. Uh, there are certain aspects of it that we don't like. You don't have to test that. The goal of action is to make a profit. That's what action is for, right? You don't, you, you, we don't have to test whether increasing the minimum wage would cause unemployment. We know that it would. Or we don't have to test that um, increasing the supply of money tends to cause prices to rise. You, right. you, you, can, you can prove these things with just pure reasoning, and it, they could never possibly be falsified. Right. Like, for instance, um, if, if, so, if a human's going to act, uh, it's necessary. It's necessarily true that so long as there's no coercion involved, that if they're acting, they're trying to attempt to transform the universe around them in such a way that's more preferential to them than otherwise would be had they not acted, or else they wouldn't have acted in the first place. Is, is that right. Sound about right? Yeah, that's right. And and uh, until Kant came along, my understanding is um, uh, most philosophers would say that yes, there's um, there's a priori. Um, uh, statements, but they're all circular. They're tautological. They they don't prove anything. Like all all men are bachelor, all bachelors are unmarried. It's true by definition, but it doesn't mm -hmm. tell you anything about the content of the world. But, but Kant believed, so they're just analytic. He would call them. So Kant believed that there are synthetic a priori statements. That is statements that tell you something about truth of the world that are synthetic. That is, they have content, and but that are a priori. And Mises believes this too, um, and so does. Uh, like a, a Rothbard, but in an Aristotelian sense, and uh, Hoppe, Hans Hermann Hoppe, as well, is the leading Misesian sort of praxeologist thinker. Right. So, so an example of this synthetic a priori truth would be uh, like the the law of marginal utility, correct, or uh, the, yes. the the a priori of action or of discourse, which we're gonna, which we are going to get into in a, in a few seconds here. Right, exactly. Okay, cool. And also, before we begin, just just one more foundational concept I want to cover is uh, the the distinction between ethics and morality. Um, I would view ethics as things or actions which are, um, if if they're broken, if they're violated, which we can use force or the threat thereof to stop. Like if I'm stealing from you, it's it's justified to use force against me. However, uh, morality could also, in my in my opinion, uh, encompass things like me uh, lying to my girlfriend or something that's that you can't really use force justifiably to, to stop that but it might I think it's uh, I think it's okay to define it like that uh, I think most people use ethics and morality sort of interchangeably okay uh, including libertarians 
I think technically speaking, ethics is more like a narrow set of rules that apply to a certain discipline, like you know, medical ethics or something like that. Uh, and they're they're related to morality, but it's not really a general thing about right and wrong. It's more about the right rules of conduct, pr- particular to a suitable uh, to a particular uh, suitable to a particular um, endeavor or field or something like that. Okay, so maybe um, we can do uh, legal rights as opposed to morality. Then would that be more accurate in your? Uh, and well, I, I think – I mean like Hoppe uses the word ethics, and he's talking about political ethics. And so <laughs> there is – I think it's because he's talking about what rules – and so libertarians care about what rules or we say, we say justified. Mm-hmm. And most libertarians would say something like um, not all things that are immoral should be illegal, right? right. Um, um, but they, most of them would say that they think uh, rights – rights are the things that correspond to that which should be illegal. Right. Um, so rights and laws go together. Um, but I think most libertarians kind of – I've heard this said many times that rights are a subset of morals. Um, but I'm not actually sure if I agree with that. I think they're overla- – I think they're intersecting sets because I'm not so sure that even if you establish that there's a right, mm-hmm. that, that – I don't know if that, that proves that violating the right is immoral. It just proves that it's unjustified. Right, and that makes sense. So I think perhaps for the, the sake of the discussion here, we can just uh, distinguish between what are rights – and, and what are um, what are what are things which are categorized as moral or immoral? So yeah. rights being possibly, but not but not necessarily a subset of morality, uh, but which which implies something different necessarily than than a, a violation of morality would. Like it's for instance, like you said, if I'm violating a right, I could also be violating a, a, a social more, but that doesn't necessarily mean that all social mores can be enforced by by the use of physical force or or, or threats yeah and i I think that to show that something is a right means that um that i mean i've thought about this a long time because most definitions are either circular or they're just sort of incomplete Mm -hmm. um probably the best one i'd read up until i started thinking about it was probably james sadowski who um i think he's a jesuit priest and i think rothbard quotes him and he says something like um Oh, I can't even remember the definition now, but something about uh, we only mean when we say that's a right that it would be immoral or something like that to to use force to stop someone from having that right or something like that. But the, the way I think about it is uh, a right is um, is the type of freedom within a given sphere that implies that if force is used by the holder of the right to – prevent other people from infr- you know, infringing on that right, then that use of force cannot be coherently criticized by someone else as right. being unjustified in some sense. I think that's kind of what it means to have a right, that you can't really – you could criticize them on moral grounds. You could say you know, you're being horrible and in standing on your rights and not letting that poor woman take a loaf of bread <laughs> um, from your store when she's starving, mm-hmm. uh, but you can't say that he has no – right basically to enforce that right so so basically rights rights are those things which if violated uh physical force or the threat thereof will be justified in, in s- attaining retribution or, or defending those rights correct yes although I, I do think that it's possible to imagine a society where physical force is rarely used mm-hmm. to like there's there's other other ways that rights are enforced without physical force than just by ostracism or social pressure. Yes. But it would still be regarded as a law. Right. I completely law agree. consequences, yeah. Uh, I completely agree. I think Robert Murphy has some good work on that as well, and, and so has Hans-Hermann Hoppe on, on yes. private law societies. So yes. let's get into it then for argumentation ethics, and this is where I feel like uh, 
some some breaking ground has been has been made as as a, a compared to natural rights theorists or even just utilitarians is that with through discourse ethics i think we've finally uh, started bridging the gap between the, the is ought problem and uh, w- would you mind for the audience stefan to kind of give a, a summary of, of argumentation ethics and what they actually sure. uh, how they prove self-ownership in an ap well yeah so let's talk briefly about what i mean how how different people come to their libertarian beliefs or think that they're justified. Uh, I think a lot of people are sort of pragmatic or practical or you might call them utilitarian or even consequentialist. They basically – they think that it, it's, it's, it's a practical way of achieving um, you know, general overall societal happiness or something like that. Mm-hmm. That's, more of a, a, that's more of a practical sort of pragmatic approach, um, and a lot of people are like that. Um, and I think that's fine. Consequentialism, I think, is fine. But the problem is, it tends to lead to unprincipled thinking, and people are afraid to be too radical because this is not really that rigorous of an argument. So it just kind of pushes you in certain directions. Uh, so utilitarians tend to be not anarchist, um, in my experience. Um, then there you have the kind of natural rights type tradition, which is this kind of Aristotelian idea that by man's nature, um, Certain things are natural to the way we should operate in the world, and you know, then they they use that kind of argument combined with economic literacy and things like that to come up with libertarian conclusions. Um, now, the one problem with that argument, I think it's fine as far as it goes, it, it, but it's more of a consequentialist type of argument. If you accept that man has a nature, and if you accept that we want to achieve certain values, then by our nature, we should live in peace and harmony with each other, etc. Um, so it's really not a what Kant would call a categorical argument. It doesn't start from the ground up. It assumes certain things, mm-hmm. um, and that's because, as Hume argued, there is an is-ought problem. And I some some natural law types don't agree with that. They think that that's not really a, a true uh, problem. I think it is. I think it's uh, the idea that you can't go from an is to an ought. That is, you can't come from a des- you can't go from a description of the way the world is or the way man's nature is. And conclude that therefore you should do this because you're introducing a normative statement or a should all of a sudden into the conversation without any foundation to build it on. It's like going from one category to the other, from from descriptive to prescriptive, we would call it. Right. So w- when you all of a sudden see that snuck into an argument, you always have to just insert it somewhere, and there's no justification given for the the should. Um, one of my friends says that uh, it's it's a it's a, it's a hypothetical imperative but it's not um it's not uh regular it's an assertoric which he says it's not if then it's 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 since then so what he says is and this is my friend jeffrey ploche um he says that you can show that since man has this nature and since man does want to do certain things therefore these things follow but i think that's sort of kind of trying to do what argumentation ethics does now argumentation ethics um i first learned about it in 1988, there was a symposium in Liberty Magazine. It was, it was uh, an article by Hans Hermann Hoppe, uh, sort of introducing this idea to the libertarian world. And what he did was he built upon a previous theory called discourse, discourse ethics by his professor Jürgen Habermas, who's a famous philosopher in Germany, and another German philosopher named Karl Otto Appel. They they're, they're kind of socialists, but they have this idea that the nature of human discourse. Um, has certain normative presuppositions built into it, um, and therefore you could never establish as true in an argument or in discourse something that was a proposition that contradicted those norms because you're always going to be in performative contradiction. So then the question is, 
well, what are those norms? Now, they, they, they use their own argument to kind of come up with social democratic ideas, um, you know, rights of welfare and education and all this. I think it's a flimsy application of their own basic idea. Now, Hoppe learned this, and he became a Misesian and a Rothbardian, and then it occurred to him he could use their basic idea uh, applying Austrian economic insights about the nature of property and scarcity and Rothbardian insights about um, you know, political, uh, political insights. Mm-hmm. To to show that this is the basic way you can justify libertarian norms, and his basic argument was um, that um, all any norm, and by norm I mean a rule that that is going to be applied like a, a law in society, uh, has to be justified for it to make sense and for it to be a valid norm. It has to be justified, but to be justified, it has to be justified in argumentation between two people. Because that is what ju- that's what argu- that's what justification is. Argument necessarily is communicative, language using, uh, argumentative justification. Mm-hmm. All justification has to be argumentative. And he would say, you know, if you anyone denies this, they're going to deny it in an argument. They're they're kind of undercutting themselves. You know, you right. can only you can only even object to that by engaging in some kind of dis- discourse or discussion with someone. So, so then the so so then he says so any any norm that is that can ever be possibly justified has to be justified in the context of an argumentation, which means that whatever the norms are of argumentation, if there are any, that is the norms that are inherently and necessarily presupposed by the participants, then you could never come up with an argument against that. And to take a, a kind of a narrow example, let's suppose you have three guys go to a Star Trek convention, and they all love Star Trek. It would be like People at the convention who are all fans challenging each other to prove that Star Trek should be liked. And you know, all you'd have to do is look at the other guy and say, well, you're here too. We all, we, you agree that Star Trek should be liked. Mm-hmm. I agree that it should be liked. Why don't you prove to me why you think it should be liked? Why would you demand of me a proof of something that you yourself necessarily believe just by being here? Right? right. right. Um, and so Hans, Hans, Hoppe's argument is a broader one than that. And, and and it's about the 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 the, pre, pre, the normative presuppositions of argumentation as such. And what he tries to argue, he tries to show is what these presuppositions are, and then to show that only the libertarian ethic he calls it set of rules could be compatible with it. And every other ethic is basically a socialistic type of ethic um, is going to be in contradiction with the normative presuppositions of the people trying to justify. The socialist ethic, right? So, so basically, I think what what those presuppositions are is that if you are engaging in an argument, an argument is inherently conflict free. Not so much that you're going to be in agreement on the points, but insofar as there's going to be a lack of physical coercion, because the whole purpose of an argument is to determine a certain truth. It's it's a set of truth claims, correct? Yep. So, yes. so basically, yeah. um, by engaging in an argument, you're already accepting the fact that you're not going to use coercion or physical violence to get the other person to concede because that defeats the purpose of the argument to persuade. And that's, not what the, that's right. That's not what argumentation is. If, if there's a threat of coercion, like if you don't accept what I'm saying, I'm going to bash you over the head, then you're just – it's like a coerced testimony for, for, for a trial. I mean that's right. not really real evidence of what the guy actually did. He's just saying it to avoid – uh, being hurt, so that's not a genuine argumentation, right? And and f- and furthermore, that it also has to be presupposed that the person you're arguing with owns themselves. Otherwise, it's a completely moot action. Why would you want to 
this uh, talk with someone who is not responsible or accountable for their their own actions or words or, or mindset, right? So Hans would say, Hoppe would say that um, you, there's an implicit and inherently uh, unavoidable agreement between the parties to agree to disagree if they have to. In other words, if they can't reach agreement based upon the force of their arguments, then they're not going to coerce each other. So there's an agreement to disagree if they have to, which is an implicit respecting of the other person's body rights. And I'm, I'm not going to attack your body. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, the participants in argument necessarily value the, the ability to engage in argument and the, and the activity of arguing. And by arguing, I don't mean contentious. You could call it discourse or discussing. You know, civilized reason discourse. So they inherently value uh, the ability to engage in this kind of activity, which which has certain what Hoppe calls practical pre- uh, preconditions. Um, it has logical ones as well. Like for example, the idea of uni- universalizability, uh, which means that if you're formulating a norm, uh, and other ones like consistency and honesty, because if you're trying to find the truth of whatever is being discussed then inconsistency and contradictory statements would undermine that goal, right? So there's a whole host of sort of um, logical-related rules that the participants can't deny uh, without falling into contradiction. Um, But there are practical ones as well, and that is that the the other person, yes, has to be free of your coercion, which which is the same thing as saying they – they have the right to control their body, which is the same thing as saying they have body ownership. Yes. So, so already just the idea of having a peaceful discussion with someone presupposes that both sides recognize the other person has the right to control their own body. Um, but then Hoppe says it's more than just that because argumentation in the practical real world is not just a free-floating activity. It has to take place in a given world of scarcity where the participants were able to survive and to able to use resources to get there and to um, have a platform to actually you know, have sitting room to, to sit down and face each other and have a conversation, which implies some ability to use resources in the world, um, like the land you're standing on or the food that nourished you and helped you get there. Um, just the ability to have successful action of which argumentation is a type requires the ability to use scarce resources. That's what human action is. Right. Um, and so therefore, these the people participating in discourse can't deny the sort of value or the goodness or the justifiability of people using resources. But to use resources, these resources were at one point unused or in the state of you know the state of nature. So that means for them to ever be used, someone has to First, use them. That is to pluck them out of the state of nature and start to use them. And you have to have the right to do it. Otherwise, you could hit someone over the head and take their stuff and prevent them from being able to argue. So that's how he extends the argument to uh, the idea of property. Right. And, and I think he also – doesn't he also discuss how um, uh, the, the original appropriation and voluntary exchange, those are the only just ways to really acquire property, and, and necessarily so. It's not, it's not just a convention because the convention implies that there's – uh, plausible alternatives, but there are no real alternatives to this norm, which being a norm is meant to try to mitigate as much conflict as possible. Yes. So any other way of acquiring of acquiring property would only generate conflict. For instance, if uh, if we always said the second person gets it or a different group of people who are never there gets it, this would only generate conflict between the person who discovered it and the other group of people or the first and the second person. So only the first person who uses it can necessarily be the only one that's conflict-free in acquiring it because there's no competing claims necessarily to the first one there, right? Yep, exactly. And, and not only that, um, um, any any norm that you propose and the reasons given to justify it 
have to be based upon some objective things about the world that everyone could at least in principle agree upon in, in a discussion. Um, it can't just be something arbitrary. If it's totally arbitrary, then you could have any – everyone could make up their own arbitrary reasons, which, which is the same thing as not having an argumentation or a discourse at all. It's basically just asserting what you're going to do and being willing to use force for it, which is, again, against the idea of being conflict-free and arguing. So, uh, so you couldn't – to say it's the second guy instead of the first, first guy, not only does it generate conflict, it also is totally arbitrary. I mean, yes. why not the third? Why not the fourth? I mean, it yes. just makes no sense uh, whatsoever. Um, so, so that's that's another reason for uh, the first person having to. Uh, and and uh, by the way, Anthony de Yasse and also Hoppe do talk about uh, this. And also Rothbard, what they do is they go through the only other possible rules that there could be. It's basically universal communism. Everyone owns a little one six billionth piece of all the other people in the world, mm-hmm. or or some kind of slavery. Or self ownership. That's basically all there is. Or, or you know, homesteading of, of things by one person. Um, and uh, uh, universal communism makes no sense whatsoever. If I own a piece of you and you own a piece of me, then who owns what? Plus, it's totally unworkable because if if everyone in the world owned you and everything out there, you'd have to get everyone's permission before you could take any action whatsoever, and we would all die of starvation, and, and the human you, race would just right. starve out. And you can't even get permission because you can't do anything without getting permission. So it's that infinite regression. Yeah, issue, yeah, right? yeah. You couldn't even ask permission because that that requires resources too. And um, and so then the other the other alternative is basically slavery. So that means one person dominates and owns the other. But that is not a universalizable rule. That's just an arbitrary assertion that I'm different than you, and I get to own you, and you don't get to own me. That is not a universalizable rule that could be accepted as fair by potentially be accepted as fair by everyone. It's just it's actually the opposite of arguing because it's just asserting I'm different than you and I'm just going to do it. Right. So, so would you say yeah. it, would you say it's fair to say that for something to be considered a valid right, that would have to be both universalizable and uh, practically actionable? Does, does that make sense? Like what do you mean uh, practically actionable. Meaning, like for instance, even though the communist scenario is universalized, no one can actually act because, like you said, you, you can't yes. permission yes. or whatever. Yeah, because it would be incompatible with what you're doing. You're both engaged in an argumentation, which, which you, you're doing without the permission of everyone on the earth. You know exactly. And that's the performative contradiction. That's why I love it so much, uh, Stefan, because it really does bridge that is is odd guy. It really does show it an incontrovertible uh, proof for these NAP and self ownership. Now, I want to ask another question. It's it's kind of getting more advanced here, which is that uh, I think it's a folly to limit the NAP to human beings i think what the the reason why we have rights and i think hoppe refers to this is because we are rational beings that is we are capable of making rational propositions uh could could you can you explain that concept a little bit because even hoppe to me seems kind of vague on that a little bit and i kind of want to really root that concept out of why why is being able to make rational propositions the thing that that grants you these rights well, but I think I think it, it follows from his just his belief in the argumentation ethics approach is that all rights or all norms, including laws and rights related ones, uh, ar- have to arise out of argumentation, which is a process of communication among obviously beings that communicate with each other, which requires a certain level of intelligence and use of language and concepts. Um, but that that would apply to anything that could do that. It wouldn't apply just to humans. There's there's nothing in there about humans. Is whatever types of beings can communicate with each other. I think the idea is that there's a certain reciprocity. It's a little bit like contract contractarianism to a degree. There's a little bit of reciprocity in 
the idea. The idea is that these two, let's say, imagine two participants to an argumentation. Um, they, they both have to recognize also this argumentation ethics justification for libertarianism as well. And if they do, then they're basically both agreeing to respect each other's rights. Mm-hmm. So sort of I'm going to agree to respect your rights, and it's sort of in exchange you're respecting mine. So it's, there's reciprocity there. But a dumb creature cannot even agree to respect your rights. Now it might be something harmless like a puppy, but the puppy is still not uh, consciously recognizing that you have rights and agreeing to respect them. Mm-hmm. So he's not agreeing to respect your rights. So there's no possibility of this reciprocity there that would allow you know the animals to have rights uh, or non-intelligent, non-sapient, or right. non-sentient animals. And it's not even that. It's not even that he's refusing to. It's not like he's refusing to respect your rights. It's that they don't have the capacity to respect your rights. Correct. That's the major yeah, they, distinction. They don't have. Yeah. No, they might not physically be a threat to you, uh, but they just cannot agree to respect your rights. Uh, now he has some comments about. Um, you know, children and things like this, and uh, which is, you know, sort of shows that at a certain age, the child w- reaches enough capacity to have full human adult rights. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I think his, his his paradigm applies to these the gray areas pretty nicely, and also to the animal case. You know, and if if, if computers ever wake up or dolphins ever evolve or uh, you know. Extraterrestrial, you know, beings come to the planet someday, and uh, they're they're intelligent enough to discuss with us. Then, as long as they respect our rights, then they would have rights as well. Right. So, Mike, do you have any thoughts on this? Uh, you've you've been kind of just observing, or any, any commentary? Yeah, I'm just observing because uh, it's Monday, so I'm not really sure I'm at the intellectual <laughs> capacity to deal to to talk intelligently <laughs> on this subject. So I don't want to dumb down the conversation. Okay. That's fine. Well, that that brings up another important question, Stefan, which is I think that I, I've I've read Murray Rothbard's uh, Ethics of Liberty, and he talks about the reason why children are granted rights, even as babies, when when of course they don't have the capacity to to engage in communication, right? Like we do, is because they're future potential adults. Would you be willing to kind of uh, root that concept out a little bit and kind of explain that a little better? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's more of the um, maybe an Aristotelian way of looking at it. Um, I mean, so look, how would you look at it? The the the, um, the, uh, the issue of children's rights and all this kind of stuff is uh, is uh, is a hard one. Uh, I think there's two ways you could look at it. One, you could say that you know basically even babies don't really have complete human rights yet because they don't have the capacity to um, to uh, respect your rights yet. They're not conscious enough, or, or you know they're not intelligent enough yet to do that. Um, uh, but and then you would say, well, then the parent owns it basically until it wakes up and has rights, and so then the parent would protect it, um, uh, the, its child as its property from from aggressors in that sense. Um, Lauren Lamasky in his book Persons, Rights, and the Moral Community has this argument um, where he calls it piggybacking. He says that you know what he calls sort of defective humans, you know, people that are maybe in comas or kind of retarded or um, or you know, I guess very young children. Um, we sort of give them – we extend our full human rights to them by this sort of piggybacking idea. I don't know if that quite works. Uh, my view is that either because they they have the potential, like Rothbard said, that, that it's hard to draw the line about where exactly rights arise. So we have to err on the side of caution and, and, and treat them as if they have 
heights, even when they're just infants, and in my view, even when they're um, even when they're uh, fetuses. Um, um, my kind of take on the well, the abortion issue. I, I don't think the, the law should pro- prohibit abortion, even though I do think it's right. kind of tantamount to murder in the late stages. Uh, I just think it's it's too problematic to, to treat it like murder, but okay. uh, or to, to to outlaw it, put it that way. But um, um, I, I I tend to think abortion is almost always immoral, even in the early stages, and it gets increasingly immoral as it develops. And then at a certain point, we 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 would attribute rights to the fetus. Like in later stages, and right? Then it's, t- would, it's, it's a rights violation too. At that point, I would agree insofar that uh, abortion is immoral, how we defined it earlier, and like you yes. said, it gets more and more progressively more immoral as the the fetus develops. However, I tend mm-hmm. to side with Rothbard in, in, in the fact that I don't believe it to be a rights violation due to his uh, his whole eviction theory. Um, that is that kind of like it's like the positive rights and negative rights, thing, right? Right. The, right. The fetus doesn't have a positive right to sustenance from the mother, uh, and the mother has sovereign domain over her own body. How, how right. do you think? What do you think about that? I've never agreed with that argument because um, I just think it, seem, it sounds it seems perverse to 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 refer to the fetus as a trespasser when it was invited by the actions of the mother. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, it's, I don't see how it's a trespasser uh, in most cases. Um, I mean, it was invited. It was caused to exist by voluntary actions of the parents. I think so. it's akin to the argument, like if if you invited Joe Bob over, and then Joe Bob decided to be a, uh, you know, he started acting uncivilized. You want him to get out, but he refuses to leave. At the point where he refuses to leave, and even though you invited him initially, then he'd be a trespasser. Yes, yeah, I but, agree with that. But the baby never does any misconduct. And 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 number two, um, you you know, it, 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 suppose this Joe Bob is on your airplane. You can't just kick him out when you <laughs> get tired of him. You, you have to wait till you land, in a, you know. Or if there's a, you know, a dinner party at your house and there's a huge, a huge hurricane starts in the middle of dinner, mm-hmm. you can't kick your guests out into this, you know, this death storm. Uh, you have to. You, you can only kick them out if it's kind of safe. I so, don't know. I think um, you could give him a parachute and a, and a good luck buddy, and then kick him out the door. <laughs> in, in both cases, hurricane or the. Uh, Plane situation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, Walter Block argues that um, you can't try to kill the fetus, but if it gets killed in the process of evicting it, well, tough luck. I think that's wrong. I think that's you can't evict it if it would mean killing it. Um, um, now, I do think if the mother's life is in danger or something like that, then, then that's okay. Um, but just optional abortion, I don't. I, I think. I think there is a. I think. See, I'm not against positive obligations. I think that libertarians are wrong to say there are no positive obligations. I just say there's no unchosen positive obligations. Right. Have, right. And that's what have, I mean. It. There, there's no inherent positive obligation. You're not positive. You're not. You're not owed anything by virtue of your being. You are only. Um, you only have the right to not be aggressed against others by virtue of your own being. And of course, through voluntary interactions, you can create positive obligations. For instance, if uh, if I pay you to do something and you don't do it, I mean, that's a positive obligation you've incurred, correct? To, to well, do not if you go by Rothbard's title theory. Right. I'm paying you like money. Contract. That's the title transfer, right? Like I'm giving you money in exchange for a service from you. Yeah, but that doesn't mean there's an obligation to perform the service. It just means that if you don't perform the service, you don't get the money. Um, no, yeah, I'm saying you pay up front. Like you pay up. Well, front. still, I think I think then the contract would have to specify what happens if you don't perform. There's, there's, maybe there's a reverse damages payment. So that means you you have to transfer some money back to the oh, to the other guy. Interesting. Um, 
Uh, now, you could argue that there's a moral obligation to, if you make a promise. You right, morally, right. But, but by Rothbard's theory, contracts are probably not the best way to illustrate the positive. A, a better one would be if you commit a crime. Um, there's a positive obligation to, uh, well, not just to stop, but to 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 apologize and try to make restitution and to, mm-hmm. you know, uh, to turn yourself in maybe or whatever. I mean, there's lots of positive. Or the example I give is like if you. Let's say you push someone maliciously into a lake who can't swim. I think you have a positive obligation to jump in and rescue them okay? because you have created the situation where you put them in a position of peril mm. and danger. And the damage, the damage you've done to them is going to even be worse if you don't rescue them. So you're responsible for that. So you're responsible to stop it. And I analogize that to the case of having a child. When you create a child, you're creating a being that – by human nature is going to be inherently helpless for some period of time after birth. Right. Um, so it's it, if you don't take care of that baby, then you're violating its rights because it's like you put it in a position of peril, like pushing someone in a lake. Um, you created it in a natural position of peril in the sense – a natural position of dependency and need. Um, and so I think the one who created that being has the obligation to uh, uh, to help it. Now, whether whether the law should enforce that or not, I don't think so. But I don't think that you just have the, the negative duty to not prevent someone from coming onto your property to rescue the child like Walter Block would argue. I think you have the positive duty to care for the child, feed it, shelter it, etc. Um, um, uh, so I, I think there is a positive obligation there. Okay, that's, that's a very interesting argument. And, and, and going back to the tile transfer uh, contract theory, basically how I understand it, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, so I, I very well may be, but it's that if if you transfer title over a physical good in your possession, like for instance, if I'm trading you, my, you uh, a car for $10,000 and I give you my car, but you don't give me a $10,000, you have implicitly stolen my $10,000 uh, and, and therefore... I, I, oh, yeah, that's... That's what uh, 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 Rothbard does say. That he talks about implicit theft. Right. Uh, I don't. I don't. I don't think that's. I don't think. I think that's a mistake in his contract theory. I think his contract theory is brilliant and revolutionary, but uh, I think that's a mistake in it, and I don't think it should be part of it because it's wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't. I've never heard of implicit theft in my life before. Before Rothbard said that, I don't know what implicit yeah. theft is. I, I definitely does. agree that promises alone are not binding. You know, even yeah. if even if it's like a, a, a concert organizer saying, "Hey, uh, let's sign a contract saying that you're going to perform here, and I'll pay you X amount of money," and and the guy never shows up to perform, I don't think he should he he has violated anyone's rights there because that was that's still just a promise. Where where it gets kind of great <laughs> for me is when is if the guy actually pays him a physical thing up front because now he has transferred title over good to him, and, yeah. and, and the other guy hasn't reciprocated. That's where it gets kind of great to me. Yeah, but but see, um, um, the way I look at that is, um, um, well, first of all, it, let's suppose I'm right that that it's it's not implicit theft, okay? okay. Sure. Um, well, in such a in such a legal system, why would you pay someone ahead of time? I mean, maybe you'd maybe you'd put it in with a third party uh, escrow agency or something, uh, you know, or or something like that, or maybe you, maybe you make the guy give you a performance bond. Right, that made more sense. Mm-hmm. But I mean, so so Walter gives this example too about, uh, and we had a whole podcast recently about voluntary slavery. Um, I mean, Rothbard says that let's say you have a, um, um, let's say you borrow a thousand dollars from from Joe, 
and you're supposed to repay a thousand eleven hundred dollars in a year, you know, ten percent interest, let's say. Mm-hmm. And you don't repay on and when the due date comes due, you don't re, you don't repay Joe. Mm-hmm. Um, then what Rothbard says theoretically that's implicit theft, and and theoretically you can go to debtor's prison for that, but that's probably disproportionate. Yeah, I heard but, that podcast actually. You had a block, okay. and I thought it was very interesting. And where I disagree with the block was that was that you stole that eleven hundred dollars. But where I I think I might disagree with you is I do think that they they did steal the one thousand dollars that was actually given. The problem with that is. Uh, and Hoppe points this out, and I think Rothbard does too, any theory of rights has to always answer the question at a given moment in time about who owns this. Just for the same reason for the same reason that communism couldn't work, right? Because you would never be able to get permission from everyone to use this resource. Right. If you have to wait to a later time to determine who who has the ownership of this thing, then it's not usable. Oh. So you have to be able to determine on the day the loan is made who owns that $1,000? And in fact, it's not conditional at all because the guy that's borrowing the money needs to be able to spend it. That's why he's borrowing the money, to spend it on some business or whatever. He can't spend the money unless he owns it outright, and that is without conditions. So the $1,000 is given to him completely, unconditionally, without any strings. It's given to him in exchange for his future title transfer of a future $1,100, which is different. And the one thousand. I see. I see. So basically, what you're saying is something cannot be stolen unless you can't, you it's, can't, it's actually you can't, owned. You can't retroactively determine something was theft when it wasn't theft. Right, because he 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 doesn't own the future thing because he doesn't own it until he actually owns it. He doesn't own it until he actually has it in his hands and he's he's actually owning it and it exists. It doesn't. Ex- the future thing doesn't actually exist yet. It's because well, so you yeah. So you can't steal the eleven hundred. If now if you're penniless. Now if you actually have money and you you refuse to repay it, that is theft because you. I would say the money you holding converts to the ownership of the bar, of the lender, and now if you don't turn it over to them, you're basically trespassing. Okay, or, you know, so if you have capacity but, to pay it back, then you are stealing. Yes, and if but if you're penniless, then there's nothing that exists to steal. And in fact, the parties had to know that possibility when they contracted because the future is inherently uncertain. So they have to know that I'm giving you an existing one thousand dollars in exchange for an uncertain future thing. Right, it's a gamble. Right? Right. <laughs> it's a gamble. Yeah, the future's always a gamble in a sense, right? right? That, that, um, so, so you, I don't think you can wait. You can't like a year later say, "Well, that one thousand dollars that that I borrowed turns out I was really stealing it." I mean, well, then how did I spend it? How, how was I? How was I able to? Right. With, you know, with the consent, I, you know. So anyway. And I think these conversations are really cool, uh, not because the hypothetical is is always going to happen, because they're usually kind of out out, out there hypotheticals. I think they really kind of root out the, the theories behind them. Because like, like I said, I don't think this would be an issue in a, in a totally free anarcho-capitalist or free market anarchist society because maybe people will always deal in with contract insurance. So if, if yep. let's say that one of the parties reneges, the party who was, was reneged on can go to that guy's contract insurance, get make a claim, and then the contract insurance has to deal with his client directly – and if he doesn't pay them, he's black flagged, or his credit, his his so-called credit score yes. would be hurt, and this would incentivize him to 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 not renege and so on. And so well, and not only that, you know, I, I'm I'm going to have contract insurance that says we're going to insure your contracts, but only if you uh, engage in certain reasonable practices of checking the credit out of people you do contracts with, including people on our blacklist. And so, in other words, you can't do you can't do a contract with someone on our blacklist. Uh, uh, because right. they're they're a known risk, and so that means people are not going to 
engage in contracts with people with bad reputations in the first place anyway. Yes. So it's it's a self-reinforcing uh, kind of process there. Yeah. Um, now, I do think reputation would play a huge role. Of course, people are going to try to pay their debts off because otherwise, uh, like like we just said, uh, they're, they're going to suffer repercussions. Right. And I think this is somewhat a, a much more rational system because in it, it's in everyone's self-interest uh, to not renege, to follow through on commitments, and to provide a service that other people like, because th- these are the only ways in which they can actually, uh, or at least with the least amount of obstacles, accrue the most amount of wealth and influence and, and power, if you will. Yeah, of course, and and and, and you know, uh, you don't you don't become successful in the first place without having a, a the, the type of character that leads you to have been accepted into society already with other people and. Um, and of course, that, we're talking the simple contract. It's not like if you if you if you're penniless on the due date of the loan that you get off scot free. I mean, most loans would have these subsidiary title transfer provisions saying that you know if you can't pay me back on the due date, then interest keeps accruing, and sure. as soon as you come into money in the future, you have to or I can garnish your wages or a certain percentage of your wages or <laughs> until you pay it off, something like that. That makes a lot of sense. And, and the last thing I want to cover tonight, uh, if you will, is this whole idea that you can own certain external goods like. An apple or corn, but but you can't own land. I think it's what's the Georgist who who say you can't actually own land or something like that. Um, I think they say you can own it, but you have to pay this single single tax. Right. So so how would you how would you approach someone who says that you can't own land? Like how would you how would you show them that you really can? How you can go from owning your body? How can you make the jump from that to being able to own actual uh, land or space, if you will? I I just don't think there's an argument that land should uh, land is another type of scarce resource. It's not really uh, it's not really that different than any any other type of scarce resource. It's uh, um, in fact it can be you know you can we can make more land in some ways. You can build islands. You could build platforms. Yeah, I mean, there's different ways to make land. Yeah, that's true. Uh, mm-hmm. Even if you can't make it, it's still a scarce resource. Um, now I do think that sometimes when you um, when you uh, appropriate land, um, it could be subject to. In other words, appropriation doesn't have to be all or nothing. So you could have someone, and Hoppe talks about this in his Libertarian Papers article from a couple years ago. Um, let's say you have a community with a kind of a common road, which no one has really tried to ex- explicitly appropriate, but everyone uses it to travel. You know. Uh, down to the river or something like that. Mm-hmm. What what they have acquired over time is this this community, this group of people have acquired kind of an easement. So it's like a partial ownership right in the land or the right to use the land in a certain way. Um, and so then if someone else then homesteads the road, they have to homestead it subject to the easement that was already homesteaded. So oh. they could so they would homestead the road, but then they wouldn't they wouldn't be able to stop people from say walking across it to go down to the river because they already had established that that right. Right, because that was the state of nature, or a quote-unquote nature it was in at the time they, they uh, homesteaded it, right? Yeah, they so only that, homesteaded that was what, was, what was left. They only homesteaded what was, all, what was, what was remaining unowned, which was you know, certain use rights of it minus the, this kind of easement right to cross it. Right, and for the audience to kind of uh, elaborate on the easement concept, basically if, like, if I bought some land next to an airport – I couldn't the day after I bought the land next to an airport, which made which the jets made a lot of noise. Uh, an injunction to get the airport to stop flying planes and make noises because that was already there before I had purchased that that property. Yeah. Is that, does yeah. that kind of explain it? Yeah, the common law the common law has already uh, said something similar, but with a different doctrine called coming to the nuisance. So normally, 
you would say if I have a house and I'm using it for certain residential purposes and someone puts an airport up right next to me, they're disturbing my peaceful use of my property. It's a type of trespass or it's called a nuisance. Mm-hmm. So I could get that enjoined where the law says, well, if you come to the nuisance, then you can't. And I think a, a conceptually cleaner way of saying it would be the libertarian approach, which is what you just said, that the, the airport has already homesteaded this certain easement right of the they, – they, they own the land the airports own, and they own the surrounding area for purposes of emitting noise, something like that. Right. Um, right. But so when you homestead a tract of land next to the airport, you're only homestead – it's like the path idea. You're only homesteading what's, what's not already – owned by someone else so mm-hmm. you take it subject to that easement yeah that makes sense and the, the only thing that was kind of weird to me when we talked about the common road thing is I've, I've always looked at homesteading as 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 requiring two parts which is of course the primary one which is actually mixing your labor or or transforming or or doing something with that previously unclaimed piece of property that was never done before and, yeah, and then embordering it is hoppa's general term in setting up borders probably sure the- Orders. So that's the that's the first thing. But I thought something after that would be like you have to actually explicitly claim it. Like if I'm walking down a path that was never unknown, I'm and I'm I'm making marks in the trees, and I just walk away. Well, is it really mine because I never really claimed it? I thought it was like a combination of claiming it and mixing your labor with it. I didn't realize. I think, I think it. I think it is. In other words, you, uh, but uh, sometimes the claiming is inherent in in your use of it. Like okay, um, you know, okay. if you build if you build a farm and you put a fence up around it. Um, it's clear that you're using it, and you're using it as an owner. You're intending to own it. So it's like an implicit claim, almost. Yeah, I think it's a it's an obvious claim. It's a transparent claim. Um, I mean, I, I guess it, it becomes obvious the second someone else tries to take it from you, and if you resist, then it shows that you're claiming as an owner. You know, sure. or if you deny them permission, you're acting as an owner. Sure. Um, you know, if if you're really a, a some kind of I don't know, communist or ultra pacifist and you just let people walk all over and you never say anything i guess you're you're just merely possessing it and you're not even intending to own it as an owner right or, or you're just not exercising your property rights right yeah yeah i guess there's two ways to look at it so um i think some things you would need to make a claim because otherwise it would be uh not clear uh you know but let's let's say you um you have an uh, 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 uh an, an um an, air, an airline, and you, you regularly fly across the sky in a certain place. You could you could say that that regular use is homesteading that airway for that use. Um, mm-hmm. Or if you have a, a radio broadcast, then you're broadcasting over a certain wave band in a certain geographic region information. You're sort of establishing your use of that part of the EM spectrum in that area. Right, that makes sense. And basically, I think there's usually this objection of, well, you know, that might be a right and everything, but who cares if it's not enforceable? And I think the practical answer to that is, well, in a free society, you're probably going to have third-party property certifiers who have a list of criteria that needs to be met before yep. they, they put their stamp of certification on there, which it would be reputable. Otherwise, you wouldn't contract with them probably. And then, and that's kind of how that works out. Does that? Does yeah, that and also you, you you're going to want you know if it's just like today, if you purchase a house. You have to get a title search done, and then, uh, uh, especially if you take a mortgage out, you're required to get uh, title insurance. We call it, right. which means some companies saying that if it turns out that you know the guy you're buying it from didn't really have good title for some reason, mm-hmm. then we'll 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 make it up to you. We'll give you the seven hundred thousand to go buy another house. Um, 
Um, so they're only going to give you that insurance after they do a thorough title search and they're confident that they're not going to have to pay up. Right. That makes so a lot I think of sense. People would have property insurance in society, especially for large things. Um, and to get that, they're going to have to have some regular set of records that people look at and that trust, uh, you know, they trust to, uh, to engage in that type of insurance business. Right. And it's in those certification, property certification agencies, best interest to have this re- reciprocity between themselves so that they can kind of verify there's not a, a competing or conflicting title on that, that property that someone else is trying to claim. Right. Yeah. Not only that, you know, people are going to, uh, patronize insurance companies and defense agencies and justice agencies that, uh, that have this cooperative attitude so that, you know, you're not, you're not hiring the one company that's warlike and expensive and always causing problems, you know, so there's a natural incentive oh, yeah. to, to go to the ones that are, um, uh, have a cooperative attitude. Absolutely. And that, that makes so much sense to me. Being cooperative is more peaceful and it's more, it's more efficient. And it just it makes so much sense to me in this sort of society it's the, the the difference isn't in function. We're not saying this the services the state provides should not be provided. What we're saying is that the incentive structure for the provision under the state system is is really defunct when compared right. with the free market. And of course, it's it's also unethical. Yeah, you could even see something like the statute of limitations arising <clears throat> privately, although you know um, we're against legislation and statutes. But um, um, the the idea if you wait too long to make a complaint about some 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 wrong done to you mm-hmm. or 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 if you, if you wait too long to claim property you think is yours um after a certain time you're going to say listen you had the chance over the last 10 years to sue this guy for contract breach or to accuse her of him of rape or or whatever uh or to you know um or to uh, say that um um you know this guy's on my great 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 grandpa's land um you kind of over time, evidence gets harder to, you know, it's not, it's more stale, it's less fresh. A lot of witnesses are dead now, right? So you're you're making a fair trial more difficult by your own delays. So it's kind of your fault that you're putting the guy you're suing in a in a worse <laughs> position now. He's going to have a harder time defending himself, let's say, because the evidence is more stale. So you can see companies increasingly frowning, or society increasingly frowning upon people who wait too long. Um, and, and not only that, I mean, like if, if, um, you know, if, uh, if you sue me for, um, my property claiming that, you know, 500 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, there's a defect in the chain of title. I mean, I don't, I'm, at a certain point in time, people are going to say, look, it's too long ago to even know we can't even prove it with certainty. So it's just too late. So over time, property titles become more certain. And by the way, it's a, it's one, it's a mistake. A lot of libertarians make, they think. That or people that criticize libertarianism too, they assume that our Lockean homesteading idea means you have to prove your title all the way back to the very first homesteader. And since we can't do that in most cases, there's some defect in libertarian theory. You don't really have to do that. All you have to do is prove a better claim than anyone else um, yes. in, in the world. And in 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 some cases, that theoretically means that if you can prove it all the way back to the first act of homesteading, then that's the best of all. But you don't have to do that. All you have to do is, is prove that you have a better claim than anyone else. And if we don't know what happened a thousand years ago, but we know what happened five hundred years ago, and that ever since then there's been a, a chain of title from whoever was using it five hundred years ago to now, then you still have a better claim than anyone else because no one can theoretically prove anything before that. Yes, um, I'm, I'm so, so happy you made that point because that that's one that that's made a lot, and I think that's uh, that's a, that's a great uh, explanation for it and a clarification on it. Thank you. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So yeah, and that makes sense too with the the, the companies or the arbitration agencies not wanting to try uh, cases which involve things that happened fifteen, twenty, or fifty years ago. Because uh, if, if if they don't, if they're not confident, they can come up with a verdict which is pretty amicable for both parties involved, which is going to be you know tying into the reputation. Yep. They might not want to try it in the first place because, again, they value the reputation because that's what gets the customers, right? So, yeah, that, yeah. that makes a lot, yeah. lot of sense. Plus, I, I think generally people – you're not going to go hire an insurance company and pay them a fee uh, on the contingency that they're going to protect you from things that happened 50 years ago. I mean you don't really need them to do that. You, you know, It's really more perspective than that. Right. Um, so um, I think that's, that's part of it uh, too. Okay, great. Well, well, thank you, Stefan, for coming on today. I, I really enjoyed this the show with you, and, and thank you so much for your time and consideration. Uh, would you like to put in some plugs for some of your websites or projects or anything? Well, yeah. If you go to stefankinsella.com, um, uh, well, I have a new podcast, which I'm going to co- uh, re-podcast this on as well, uh, Kinsella on Liberty. It's at my site, stefankinsella.com. But on my publications uh, tab there, um, I have an article called Argumentation Ethics, A Concise Guide or something like that. And it sort of summarizes this argumentation ethics thing we talked about and has links to Hoppe's stuff and some of my articles on it. I have something similar called Estoppel, which is a similar type of argument. And uh, those of others like Stephen Molyneux and uh, Frank Van Dunn and others. So there's a, a wealth of resources in that short article directing people to more pieces about that topic if they want to look further. Great, great. And, uh, and just one last thing. Have you heard of Stefan's universally preferable behavior? Yes. That's yes. when I've read it, and then I read Hoppe's argumentation ethics, and it seems like UPB is just kind of a repackaged form of argumentation ethics. Does that seem? Yeah, it seems to be. I, I'm not aware that he, 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 um, he, he has read much of Hoppe's stuff. I think he might have come up with it on his own. Yeah, coincidentally, um, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think it is similar in 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 broad outline. Um, I think Hoppe's is the most rigorous one I've seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and Van Dunn's uh, as well. Uh, there's a lot of similar arguments by uh, by other writers, and and the basic logic of it is, you know, you can go back for hundreds of years and find thinkers who have said things that are similar. Like you know, if uh, even Locke said something like, you know, people that violate others' rights can be treated like wild animals because there's sort of an inconsistency in claiming the protection of rights while you're violating rights. And that's you know, the estoppel approach that you're, you're talking about right now. Yes, and I think that complements uh, and is consistent with Hoppe's approach too. Yeah, that's the estoppel approach as well. Great. Well, well, thank you again, Stefan. We really enjoyed it. And uh, Mike will put the, the link to your concise guide to argumentation ethics on there. And uh, Mike, would you, would you mind giving Stefan your uh, email address so he can send you the, the audio file for this podcast? Sure. Um... My email address is m. Actually, you know what? Just use the first degree liberty at gmail dot com. Okay, that makes it easy. I'll do it. Yeah, Excellent. and you can probably just send them on the on the on the Skype messenger too. Could try that too. Yep. Uh, cool. Well, it. thank well, thank you, Stefan, and um, I hope you'll join us again sometime in the future because we really enjoyed your uh, your presence here. Thank you. I'd like to. I enjoyed it too. Thanks, guys. This year, you should check out the most critically acclaimed podcast on the net. First Degree Liberty is the winner of more made-up awards than any other podcast. The New York Times calls it stunning, breathtaking, by far the greatest podcast ever. It's a heartwarming confirmation of the can-do American spirit inside us all. First Degree Liberty, starring Chase Rachels and Mike Martelli.